welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. I'm Leah Kaufman, and I'm joined by my co-host, A.J. Malkowitz, who will tell you a bit about what you'll hear today in podcast number 11. Dr. Anthony Atala, head of the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, made headlines recently when he announced that his group had grown new bladders for patients with spina bifida, helping to restore bladder control and reduce the kidney damage that people with the condition often suffer. We met with Dr. Atala in April during the 2006 Regenerate World Congress. Let's hear from Dr. Atala now. So, Dr. Atala, thank you for joining us. Tell me which institution you come from. I'm at the Wake Forest University Institute for Regenerative Medicine. And what do you do there? What kind of work? Uh, basically, I direct the institute that is dedicated to the field of regenerative medicine, which of course includes tissue engineering, cell therapy, organ regeneration. Okay. And you had some huge news lately. Um, this is actually work you did a few years ago, helping kids with spina bifida to have more control over their bladders. Tell me a little bit about that. Were the results as you expected? Were they better than expected? Sure. This is actually work we started about 16 years ago. Oh. So we started working on the bladder uh, 16 years ago. Mainly the bladder is a fairly complex organ. It is an organ which is designed to expand, and when it expands, it keeps the pressures low. So you're not there, you know, if you just had coffee 30 minutes ago, you're not sitting there telling yourself, oh, my bladder is now 33% full. It just doesn't happen that way. What happens is the bladder gets full up to a certain level, and when it's full, it actually tells your brain, okay, it's ready to empty. So it's a fairly complex organ. We started working on this 16 years ago. About uh, seven years ago, we were fortunate enough to be able to launch this to the clinic and to actually engineer organs that we could put back into the patients. Amazing. And so how much of that engineering happened in the lab? Uh, just tell me a little bit about the mechanism of getting the cells and growing them how you needed them to grow them. One of the major challenges in this work was how could we get the cells to grow outside the body. Mm -hmm. At the time, we could get cells to survive outside the body for one or two weeks, but we could not get the cells to expand. So very much like pancreatic cells today, for example, cells for diabetes, you still can't get those to expand outside the body. The same was true for the bladder 16 years ago, and we started looking at how can we get these cells to grow and expand? And we knew that the bladder would regenerate, just like the liver does, for example, if injured. So we actually tried to exploit some of the wound healing mechanisms within the bladder to try to come to mechanisms by which we could grow these cells outside the body in large quantities. Okay. And how did you end up solving that problem? So you stimulate the cells to think that they're wounded and they begin to proliferate or? Well, the main uh, thing was we actually uh, did some injury models and then we were targeting to see which uh, were the cells which were given rights to the new tissue. And at the time, we actually located what we now, of course, uh, can easily call targeted progenitor cells. Oh. So we went for the progenitor cell population within the organ itself which would allow us to go out and then target those cells for specific growth and expansion outside the body. Okay, so you take a sample, let's say, of general tissue, and you, from, that, from your patient, is that right? And then from that sample, you find those progenitor cells, and then you can amplify them, grow more of them. But what's the next step after that? That's a good question. The way that uh, it works, actually, we identified patients who were considered candidates for uh, reconstruction. They had end-stage organ disease, and they had failed all medical therapy. 
So we ended up bringing these patients in. We took a small biopsy, a small piece of tissue from their own bladders, less than half the size of a postage stamp, and we would then tease apart the different layers. The bladder is composed of three layers, of se uh, three layers, and we would actually grow the cells separately, and we would throw the middle layer away, which is a collagen or a matrix layer that we would throw away. We would then expand those cell populations outside the body separately, and then we would do a CT scan, which is an X-ray of the patient, which would allow us to create a three-dimensional mold, if you will, that would replicate what their bladder should look like. And we then created this three-dimensional mold made with a biodegradable material, that is, materials that go away on their own over time. Once we had this scaffold in the shape of a bladder, six weeks later, from the time we took the small piece of tissue, we could then take the cells, which we had grown in large quantities, and we would then layer those cells onto the scaffold, very much like baking a layer cake, if you will. We would take cells and layer those one layer, and then another layer, and then another layer, and we would do this by placing this scaffold into this oven-like instrument, which is an incubator, mm -hmm. which has the same characteristics as a human body, basically 95% oxygen, 37 degrees centigrade, and inside that oven, if you will, that engineered tissue would start taking form and go through a process of development up to a certain stage. Seven days later, uh, we would be able to implant that back into the patient. The whole process was approximately six uh, to uh, eight weeks from the time we took the biopsy to the time we implanted the tissue back into the patient. I'm trying to imagine the nervous anticipation of a patient waiting those six, eight weeks for a bladder. That probably improved their quality of life quite a bit. We were uh, fortunate to have made an impact on those patients. And uh, uh, the things that we found in the study was that these patients had much lower pressures, uh, which was uh, really the main reason why we did the surgery. Because the high pressures can damage their kidneys, as I that understand is, it. That is absolutely correct. The high pressure in the bladder, the abnormal bladder does not keep the pressures low. And if the pressures are high, those pressures can be transmitted to the kidney and lead to kidney damage. Okay. And so the, the, the nicest thing about this study was that we found that, the, indeed, these patients were able to lower their pressures markedly and were able to keep their pressures low throughout the duration of the study, which it was uh, you know, up to six years later. That's great. Now, that's exciting news. And I want to ask you, you're here at this large meeting of your colleagues, have you, um, what's the most exciting thing you've heard about here today at Regenerate? Well, there's so many exciting things going on in the field right now. It's just really an exciting time to be involved in this field because what we're seeing now is new advances in many different areas of cell expansion, cell growth, new designs of biomaterials which are, are going to allow us to insert constructs into patients which are what we call smart mm -hmm. biomaterials, smart tissues. So we have the potential in the future, hopefully, not only to design tissues that we can put into patients, but to actually design better tissues that will perform better than one would expect. And actually, let me go backwards a little bit. Does the tissue that you grew in an incubator for your patients um, with, with bladders that weren't working normally, does that tissue behave just as a normal bladder, or does it behave well enough to solve the problem for the patients? Well, it depends what your, uh, what your target is. I mean, basically, experimentally, we've been able to replace, you know, the entire organ, and, and it just functions normally if you put it into a normal environment. 
If you, however, are putting those organs into defective environments, eventually, of course, there's nothing you can do about the defective environment. So you have to really play a balance in terms of what you're creating for the improvement of patients' lives. At the end of the day, what you really want to do is improve their quality of life. So are you talking about a scenario like with type 1 diabetes where maybe we have the technology to um, regrow a pancreas except that the autoimmune problem that causes diabetes, i.e. the defective environment that you're referring to, is still there? We Absolutely. haven't solved that problem yet. Okay. That's exactly right. And okay. I think that's the next, uh, the next challenge with the field. I mean, you know, even now, if you were able to create pancreas, just an excellent example that you brought up. If you were able to engineer pancreas for patients with type 1 diabetes, that will work for several years, but eventually the body will again attack those cells, and you have to retreat that patient again. So eventually, of course, the goal would be to do both, mm -hmm. replace the pancreas, but at the same time be able to solve the problem that led to the default of the pancreas to begin with. So I think I hear you saying that the field has to pick its problems at this sort of early stage. We need to find, um, identify sort of solvable problems given the technologies that we have right now. And you've chosen one of those with um, your spina bifida patients. Um, but this is by no means an isolated incident. I also hear you saying that there are lots of investigators here at the meeting today who are at a similar stage. Correct. They're I think that it's important to realize that this field now has, has really taken off. We have, you know, investigators all over the world trying to solve different kinds of problems. And I think that the future will really benefit. We'll see a lot of benefit in the future when we look at some of the technologies being developed today that will be able to uh, be applied to patients in the future. Okay. And what's the next step for you? Well, you know, what we have done is we have, you know, we, of course, we're working in the bladder for 16 years. But we actually implanted the first bladder in a patient uh, almost seven years ago. So we have, in the last you know, many years, we have been applying the strategies that we used to engineer bladders to engineer other tissues. So at the institute at Wake Forest, we're working on many other di different tissue types, including the pancreas, the liver, the heart, blood vessels, and other tissues, kidneys, other tissues and organs, pretty much using the same strategies that we use for the bladder. Okay. And I also want to go backwards yet again, and um, I think some of our listeners may not, they know we're at a big meeting called Regenerate, but they may not understand why it's important for scientists to get together every once in a while. And through the course of our podcasts, we've given them a picture of why basic science is important and why it takes a while for that to get to clinical practice and things like that. Um, can you just give us a brief view of why it's cool for so many scientists working on so many problems from so many disciplines to come together in one place like this? Absolutely. We basically learn from each other. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's amazing because you, you do realize that you don't want to make the same mistakes. And you want to look at other people's uh, experiments, see what worked, what didn't, and take what worked and take it to the next level. And obviously, any time that you're working on these technologies, it takes a community. It mm -hmm. takes a community of scientists working together for the betterment of patients for the future. Good. And, and that makes me realize, too, that often we hear about successes, but we don't, at least the public doesn't often hear about the noble failures that, that still help to move the field forward. So Absolutely. And those failures are just as important as a success because it is through our failures that we learn what does not work and maybe we choose a path that would lead us to success. And it is important for us as scientists to realize that as we go forward on these technologies, there are challenges ahead for 
even the technologies we have in patients today, there's still challenges ahead. And, but certainly, the challenges that we face are made much easier by all the work and dedication that has been brought forward by the scientists before us. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us today? No, I, th I appreciate you being at this meeting, and thank you for all you do in this podcast. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. For more information about Dr. Atala's current work, please see the link at our website, regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Leah, why don't you tell us a little bit about our next podcast? Also at the Regenerate World Congress, we met with Dr. David Williams from the University of Liverpool in the United Kingdom. Dr. Williams is helping to shape the direction of regenerative medicine research in the UK by advising policymakers and regulators on healthcare ethics and economics. And we met Ms. Marianne Liebert, the publisher of over 50 respected scientific journals on subjects ranging from AIDS to zebrafish. You can hear from Dr. Williams and Ms. Liebert in podcast number 12, coming to you in early July. Now we'd like to invite you to tell us more about you and your interests so that we can bring you the interviews and information you'd like to hear. We hope you'll take a few minutes to complete the listener survey by visiting the link at our website. All survey respondents will be entered into a drawing for a McGowan Institute fleece vest. And if you have ideas for future podcasts, or you'd just like to give us some feedback, please send us an email at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions. And let me remind you that we are not physicians and we cannot provide diagnoses or medical advice. We hope that you'll stay subscribed to the RSS feed of this podcast, brought to you by the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We hope you'll join us again in the next few weeks.